Uh, we're going to turn now back to the book of James. We've been looking at this letter for uh, a, a while now. And again, this morning, James is going to be talking about words and language. It seems like James talks a lot about talking. But here, in this passage, James' emotion somewhat boils over. You can almost imagine, at least I can, I can see him walking around his office dictating this letter to a scribe who's sitting there trying to copy all of it down. And for the first three chapters, this guy's probably getting really bored. James, you say the same thing over and over and over again. We get to this passage, and there's no way that he can keep up because James is fired up. Why? What has James so amped up? Well, let's listen to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. See if you can pick it out. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, as we come before you this morning, it's easy for us to feel the, the emotion in James's words and to try to distance ourselves from it. It's easy for us to hear conviction and potentially condemnation and, and want to escape. But I ask that you would send your spirit into our hearts God, to help us take a real look at who we are. Not a look in comparison to our lives, to other people, but from what the, the Bible tells us is true about us. How much we need you and how much you have done to love us. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Years ago, when I was a kid, my family was eating at uh, dinner at Boston Market. You know Boston Market, the rotisserie chicken chain? Uh, and we were there with another family, some close family friends of ours. And as dinner was wrapping up, my mom asked my brother and I to take the trash to the trash can. And as things happened between brothers, it quickly became a race. We figured out this was going to be who could deliver the trash to the trash can the fastest. Well, my brother decided to go around the red railing that they had set up. You know, it separates like the dining area from the line where you order. So he was foolish enough to go around that way. There was nobody in line. So I, being the faster and wiser brother, was going to duck under the railing and just get right to the trash can. 
something happened as I went under the railing. I'm not quite sure to this day. I think it was because I had trash in one hand and only grabbed the railing with the other. But as I went under the rail, I hit my head on one of the black wooden chairs that they had there. And I was in pain. My ear was red hot burning. I was embarrassed that I had hit my head on a chair in a restaurant while trying to beat my brother to a trash can. And so I just put the trash in the trash can and sat back down and hoped nobody had noticed. I didn't want to be embarrassed, even though my ear was throbbing. When I was sitting there, someone at the table said, oh, Stephen, you've got some cream spinach on your ear. Okay, that's weird. I didn't eat any cream spinach. So I reached up to feel what was happening, and I found a four-inch black wooden spike from the chair had gone straight up through my ear and pierced the cartilage. Sometimes things are worse than they seem. (laughs) On the surface, conflicts, problems, they might seem like it's no big deal. Something minor, something that might be embarrassing if people notice, but not really something to write home about, right? Uh, Something that maybe we can fix or, or we can move past them, get over them. Certainly nothing to worry about. But what James says here is that they're in fact dangerous and potentially deadly. Because conflict in our lives arises from deep problems in our hearts, and it actually causes deeper problems than we even realize. Now, this is a disclaimer for this sermon. James is not trying to cover all scenarios of life. He's not trying to teach his audience, audience excuse me, how to deal with the issues and sins of other people that might bring conflict into our lives. He is trying to focus their attention on their own hearts. He is trying to get us to see the role that we play in the conflict of our lives, the problems that we cause ourselves. He's not pointing out how we should address the outside issues or or people out there. He's just trying to get us to be honest with ourselves. This is about you. Look inside. Be honest. Take ownership over your part. When we hear James talk about conflict in our lives, he paints this picture of a downward spiral. Conflict inside leads to conflict outside. Conflict outside creates more conflict inside. And around and around and down and down we go. And James says, don't get stuck on trying to fix that downward spiral because the problem is much, much deeper than that. And the only solution is God's grace. Those are our three points this morning. Conflict inside, conflict outside. The problem is deeper, and the solution is grace. We're going to start by talking about conflict inside, conflict outside. This section of James's letter is written in a way that we would call an inclusio. The beginning and the end are connected to each other, and in this particular section, it's because he's talking about practical things. He starts with this really honest and deep rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, that's a pretty good question, James. But I bet that some of you might be thinking to yourself, I actually don't have a lot of conflict in my life. I really dislike it. I try to avoid it at all costs. I'm not fighting with anybody right now. I'm not in conflict with anybody. But I would like to remind you that conflict doesn't have to be aggressive or an overflow of emotion. It can also be cold and it can be icy, creating distance between you and someone else because you don't want to talk to them, see them, have to deal with what's gone on between you. So let me ask you this. How is your relationship with your family now that it operates mostly through Zoom or FaceTime these days? How is your relationship 
with your kids or your roommates, the people that you have to see and are forced to see way more than normal? What about your boss? What about your neighbors? Maybe those relationships are intense right now. There is conflict, obvious conflict there. But maybe for some of those, you're keeping people at an arm's length so that it doesn't blow up. Either way, conflict. What causes this? James pinpoints, your passions are at war within you. Now this Greek word here, passions, is hedone, which is where we get our word hedonism from, right? It is a self-centered desire. James says your heart is filled with these and they are at war within you. Why is there conflict out there? Because there is conflict in here. He describes it a little bit for us. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet. You want what someone else has and you cannot obtain, so you fight and and you quarrel. Now, James is probably not talking about actual murder here. Uh, It's highly unlikely that he would write about taking someone else's life and just move on quickly. Plus, we know James takes a lot of his theology from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. So most likely, James is talking about murder here in the same way that Jesus does. The way we heard Bob talk about it today in our worship leading. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard it said from those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Murdering others begins and it ends, for most of us, in here. Last month, we had a parenting seminar on Zoom, uh, and there were lots of folks that were there, and in the middle of it, the, the counselor said something that struck me uh, powerful. I was, I was kind of, had one of those moments where my eyes were opened, and I realized something that, for whatever reason, I hadn't before. She was talking about loving our kids in the midst of a meltdown or a tantrum or an explosive emotional response, uh, and she said something to the effect of, you can't love your child in the midst of their, bea- their bad behavior or mentor your child's heart well when yours is all amped up and dysregulated. And I had this moment where I realized this isn't about parenting only, but this is what is true for me in all of my relationships. It starts in here. When I get an email and the subject line is, would love to talk about your last sermon, I start to get agitated and sweaty because my desire to be respected is at war with my fear of conflict. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I I shut down. It's hard for me to respond well. Some of you are like, that's why he hasn't emailed me back. When I sit down in a a meeting with Bob or with one of our staff members or one of our elders and we start to talk about and even critique a particular aspect of the church that is my responsibility, my longing to be accepted leads me to respond often defensively and not graciously. When Nicole tells me that I've done or said something that has hurt her feelings, my shame and my guilt leads me to quickly point out what she's done wrong. There is conflict out there in my life because there is conflict in here, in my heart. My self-centered desires are at war within me and it leads me to create and sustain conflict in my relationships. We harm others with our words, our actions, our inaction and our distance. 
we murder people with our anger and our bitterness. James talks about it in another way, verse 11 and following. He says, don't speak evil against one another. Speaking evil is passing judgment. Does that sound like you? Passing judgment on other people. Speaking evil, purposefully keeping people at arm's length, murdering each other in our hearts. Be honest with yourself. The answer is yes. But even when we use these these deep words like speaking evil, these words like murdering each other, we still kind of shrug it off, don't we? It's not that big a deal. I had this eye-opening experience in this uh, parenting Zoom last month, but you would never be able to know that I had this eye-opening experience based on the way I've behaved and acted and reacted the past couple of weeks. We excuse our sin so quickly. We think things like, well, they started it. We tell other people, I might have hurt your feelings, but do you realize what you did first? If you only knew how tired I am, if you only know how alone I felt, we justify it to ourselves by saying, I'm not actually murdering them, right? I've never said any of this to their face, so it's really not that bad. We engage in these behaviors, this conflict that James talks about, and, and we just don't get it to go away. We don't really uh, change the way we view ourselves. It doesn't make an impact on our consciousness at all because they just seem like neat and tidy, respectable sins. And that's exactly what makes James so angry. Because while conflict inside creates conflict outside, the problem itself is so much deeper. James drops the pleasant a tone conversation that he's been having throughout the letter. And in verse 4, he loses the, the nice pleasantry of brothers that he's used throughout the letter, and he calls his audience an adulterous people. Wow, that escalated quickly. James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, deep strife with God? Or you do, do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? That our deep problem comes from our response to God's jealousy. He yearns jealously over your spirit, over you. Now, we naturally think that jealousy is something wrong, something bad, something that we should suppress in our own lives, but that's only because we are often jealous over things we don't rightly deserve. We are looking to get things that don't belong to us, but God is jealous in the opposite direction. God wants what is actually His. He wants what belongs to Him. You. He wants you because He made you. James says He yearns jealously over the Spirit, your life force that He made in you. He wants you, He's jealous over you, and He loves you. In the first century when James is writing, friendship wasn't just this thing where you give high fives to people when you see them or give them the, you know, masked nod where you can't really say anything. It was a deep, intimate relationship where thoughts, emotions, hopes, and dreams, and time were shared together. If you are sharing your life with the world, you are not sharing your life with God the one who created and sustained you. James says when we allow quarreling passions in our hearts to cause conflict in our lives, when we speak evil against one another, when we judge one another and murder others in our hearts, 
and we don't think it's that big of a deal, that's just tolerating sin. It's making friends with the world. It puts us not just away from God, but against God. Now that transition there, not just away from God, but against God, seems like a stretch. But listen to how James walks us through it logically at the end of this section. He says, if you speak evil against one another, if you speak evil against one another, you judge not just the other person, but you judge the law. You judge their actions. You say how foolish they might be. You point out what they've done wrong. This way is right. That way is wrong. And you make yourself a judge. Right? Think about an actual judge in a courtroom. When they sit down and they declare something about someone else's actions, whether they're right or they're wrong, they're doing so based on their own knowledge and understanding and interpretation of the law. They judge not just the person's actions, but how the law applies to this particular situation. So, when you judge someone else, you declare yourself to be a judge, one who judges the law. So when you say to yourself or a friend, look at this person, this other friend of mine, how foolish they are for wearing a mask everywhere, for masking their kids when they're outside playing, for driving in a car by themselves with a mask, how foolish. What you're really saying is that behavior is wrong because I know what is right. I understand how to decide between right and wrong in this situation. The same is true when you see someone who's not wearing a mask and you scoff to yourself, or you point out to your kids how reckless, how dangerous this person is, and they should just stay at home if that's what they want to do, because that is wrong. You're communicating, I know the situation best. I know this person, I know their story, and they are wrong. I am the judge, and I declare them wrong. Now, please remember, James isn't arguing about the other person's actions, or whether or not what they are doing is wrong or right and how it impacts you and how you should respond. James is trying to get us to look at our own hearts and see we really do think that we deserve to be a judge, that we're worthy of judging others. You remember the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks? Fantastic movie. Amazing. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the real-life con man, Frank Abagnale. And there's a scene early in the movie when he's still young, still in high school. His family moves, and he has to start at a new school. On his first day, he's trying to find his French class. He's never been in the school before. He finally walks into the class, and the kids are all standing up, talking, joking, throwing stuff around, and they look at him, and they make fun of him for wearing a sport coat. And they say, you, you look like the substitute teacher. And something switches in his mind. And the con man inside comes out. He walks to the board and with authority picks up a piece of chalk and he writes his name on the board. And the way he speaks to the class and his actions communicate, I am in charge. He says, quiet down. My name is Mr. Abagnale. Not Abagnale, not Abagnale, but Abagnale. Now, will someone please remind me where we finished off in our textbooks? And every student buys it. He spoke as one with authority. He used his his body language to communicate, I am the substitute teacher. And when the real substitute teacher walks in the room, the way he speaks to her communicates, I'm really in charge here. I've got this taken care of. Well, the next scene is when the principal has to call his parents in. They said, the problem we have is not his attendance. The problem is he's been teaching class for the past week. 
lecturing students, giving out homework. He even had a parent-teacher conference and was planning a field trip to a French bread factory in Trenton. Do you see the problem we have? The problem is he was not a teacher. He was a student. You are not the judge. There is only one judge and one lawgiver, James says. You can put on the robe, you can sit behind the bench, you can speak with as much authority as you would like and pass judgment all you want, but you are not the judge. And when you set yourself up to be one, you make yourself a counterfeit judge, one who stands not just against, away from God, but against God. When you speak evil, when you pass judgment, when you murder in your heart, you don't just make yourself far from God, but you make yourself God's enemy, a friend to the world. How can any of this be dealt with? We've already said that conflict inside and conflict outside kind of gets a pass from us a lot of times. And if the problem is really deeper than we know, if it's being at opposition and a false impersonator of God, what can we do? The only solution is God's grace. It's my last point. The only solution is God's grace. What did God do with his jealousy over you? Did he just say, I want this person that I've made and I love, but they're choosing to be friends with the world, so I'm sad. Did he just sit back and watch us walk ourselves to the other side and die? No, he crossed enemy lines. He took on flesh and he became man. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the outworking of God's jealousy over you. He wanted you so much that He created and executed a rescue plan to save us from ourselves. How does that feel? You need to be saved from yourself. Man, I don't know about you, but I don't like seeing myself as an enemy. I think of myself as the hero, the one who not only doesn't need to be saved, but should be doing the saving. That's pride. Pride reigns in our hearts, and James says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is where real life change starts, where freedom from that deep problem starts, and where peace begins to come in and take the place of conflict in our hearts and in our lives. In recognizing, believing, and living out of the truth, I need to be saved from myself, from my sin, from my own conflicted heart. I need to be rescued. Yes, in terms of salvation, that is correct, but also every single day, I need to be rescued from the sin that still creates conflict in my heart, the sin that still comes out and creates conflict in my relationship with other people. Great, Stephen, so I just need to believe that I need to be saved. I'll wake up tomorrow and say, God, save me from myself. Help me not be so conflicted. And if he doesn't give me a conflict-free Monday, then I know he doesn't love me, right? No, that's, that's not what James is saying here. He actually tells us what God's grace looks like for us. James tells his audience how to go take up God's grace. He says this, humble yourselves before the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. This section of James's letters contains the lar- one of the largest groupings of imperatives in Scripture. Commands. Submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter and joy be turned. James is telling us what to do. He's giving us directions to God's grace. But they might still seem ambiguous to us, and so we might resist doing them. But what we can point to is that these actions mirror what we would call the spiritual disciplines. Regular prayer, regular Bible reading, meditation, fasting, giving, serving, right? These are all habits, practices, things that God has told us He uses to apply grace to us, to work life and light and peace into our dark, dead hearts. These actions are God's grace. It doesn't really feel good, though, does it? It seems a little bit scary. As a young child sitting there in Boston Market with a jagged wooden spike through my ear, it was a splinter. You guys got to know this. It probably wasn't that big, but in my mind's eye, it was massive. I'm sitting there terrified, not knowing what to do. The mother of our family friends that was there was a nurse, and she knew what to do. So she put on her glasses. She moved my head back into the light so she could see. Then she had me lay back on the table, and she got her husband's Leatherman tool. You know what a Leatherman tool is? It's like tweezers, pliers, knife, whatever. It's the American answer to the Swiss Army knife is what it really is. She got it out. She pulled out the pliers. She put one hand on my forehead to keep me from moving. She grasped the splinter with the the pliers, and she yanked that thing out. God is jealous over your spirit, over you. He doesn't want a divided and conflicted heart making friends with the world. So His grace is not only to bring you from death back to life, but to slowly, methodically, and carefully pull the conflict out of your heart, to pull the sin out of your life. It won't be easy. It may not be fun. You may not want it to happen that way. But God, through His servant James, invites us to see that our own hearts are the issue. And He invites us to follow these commands and take hold of the grace that He has given us to be set free from conflict and from sin. Let's pray. God, we confess that these words feel good. They sound great. It feels like new life. And yet they're terrifying. It's terrifying to think that we should humble ourselves before you. We don't know that we can trust you. Help us to see how you treated your son Jesus as a a model for how we can know you you treat us. When we humble ourselves as Jesus did, you will exalt us as you exalted Jesus. Thank you for the promise through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we are united to him united to Him in His death and united to Him in His resurrection. I pray that that would give us strength. Pray that You would help us this morning. Pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.